0: Hello, and welcome to the TechDirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, Once again, for today's podcast, we're actually sharing a panel discussion that I was on recently. Uh, This one is from the Reboot Conference uh, put on by the Lincoln Network in late September. Uh, This panel was, I think, a bit different uh, than the usual panels that I've been on topic-wise, but it was still a really important and interesting discussion. The title of the panel was, Will Rising Activism Limit Governments' Access to Silicon Valley? And the main focus of the discussion was about employees at various tech companies protesting internally when those companies are getting government contracts to work on issues related to national security or law enforcement. Uh, There were a few other topics that we cover as well, but I think that was kind of the main one. Uh, The recording here doesn't have the intro, so uh, let me just tell you that the moderator of the panel was Katie McAuliffe from Americans for Tax Reform, who you will hear asking a question right up front. Uh, After that, the first voice you'll hear responding to McAuliffe's question is Pablo Carrillo, who is a lawyer at Squire Patton Boggs, uh, but perhaps is better known as the former chief of staff to Senator John McCain. Uh, The next speaker that you'll hear is Trey Stevens, who is a partner at Founders Fund Currently, and was an early employee at Palantir. And then finally, I'll chime in last. Uh, Because this is my podcast and I have the benefit and power of being able to chime in after the fact, I did want to address one point that Stevens, again, the former Palantir employee, made during the panel that I thought was a little bizarre and completely unfair. Uh, I found it so flabbergasting during the panel that I will admit I thought I must have misheard what he said and didn't fully address it during the panel. However, now having gone back and re-listened to it, I think it really deserves further comment. Specifically, as you'll hear, Stevens at one point highlights an apparent comment made by Google CEO Sundar Pichai defending Google's effort to build technology for governments. Uh, Stevens paraphrases Pichai to say something to the effect of, isn't it better that Google, a globalist company, develop these technologies rather than nationalist defense contractors? Steven then says, quote, so, literally, his framing is, I don't believe in the nation-state. Therefore, these programs have nothing to do with protecting the nation-state. We are protectors of the universal world order, end quote. So, <laughs> this comment is crazy for a variety of reasons. First off, uh, I should note, it wasn't Pachai who is quoted as saying something kind of like this. It was actually Sergey Brin, uh, who is, you know, the co-founder of Google, but is obviously a different person than Pachai, And he certainly didn't use words that I think are commonly considered dog whistles for racists, such as globalist and universal world order. Specifically, the New York Times said that Brin claimed that it was better for peace if the world's militaries were intertwined with international organizations rather than working solely with nationalistic defense contractors. Also in context, Brin's point makes perfect sense and certainly does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that he or anyone at Google does not believe in the nation state. It is entirely possible to believe in the nation state while simultaneously Simultaneously believing that having international companies designing technologies might have a better chance of leading to peace rather than focusing solely on companies whose entire existence is based on advocating for more war and more military spending. That is the point that Bryn was clearly making, and I found it ridiculously misleading for Stevens to imply otherwise, especially using such coded language that implies a nefarious view towards our own country. Anyway, with that, let's get to the whole panel. And again, uh, you will first hear uh, the moderator, Kenny McCullough, followed by Pablo Carrillo, followed by Trey Stevens, and then finally myself. And uh, let's get to the panel. Thanks. The world is
1: increasingly technological. and with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the to pay to control. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Sutilize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and dig up the tap.
2: So I wanted to kick off with a question to you guys generally. Um, why should innovative and uh, commercial companies work with defense, law enforcement, or national security agencies. Whoever wants to take that first. Sir, why
1: don't I go ahead and start the. Um, in short, the the issue of and why don't I just limit my, my remarks to uh, defense, and national security. Um, haven't really thought about uh, homeland security or, or or le per se, but. In terms of national security, the, the DOD's continuing access to commercially developed dual-use technology over the last 20, 15 to 20 years has taken on geopolitical dimensions. Um, let me unpack that a little bit. So, of course, as we all know, over the last 15 to 20 years, most of the technological innovation that's been happening, that's been really, really, truly innovative and, 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 and world-changing, has been happening within the commercial sector, not within the DOD or any, any other federal agency or federally researched uh, uh, uh research institutions been happening among uh, uh, commercial companies um, in the area of particularly in 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 national security relevant areas be it ai nanosec- uh, nano nano uh, encryption uh, robotics etc um This is a a really fascinating development, but it's made particularly salient given two propositions. Number one, historically, the DoD has had a good amount of difficulty doing business with precisely these types of companies, pure-play commercial companies, overly Byzantine uh, 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 regulatory structure that describes how it uh, procures uh, commercial products and services, just uh, cultural biases that really make it difficult for the DoD to do business with pure-play commercial companies. The second proposition is in that against that backdrop, the uh, the Chinese and the Russians in particular have been strategically investing in those very same companies, um, and, and those very same tech, and those very very and those very technologies, giving rise to a national security problem. Uh, so succinctly stated, I think this is one reason why this issue has seized the attention of
3: folks around the country and and, and certainly in DC. Yeah, I would add that. There seems to be a belief that you can kind of sit this out, that it's possible to just be like, ah, well, you know, I'm not going to work on it, so maybe everything, all the progress around the entire world will stop if I stop. Um, And the reality is that these authoritarian governments um, have access to uh, innovation in this space much more than they did during the Cold War to the ways that we were be- being competitive there. It's much harder for Iran to build an aircraft carrier than it is for Iran and North Korea to essentially conscript forced labor out of their most talented people into working on software pro- projects. Um, so my like short version of this is that I think if you care about liberal democratic values like equality, freedom of speech, good governance, oversight – um, you should care about working in, with the national security community because the alternative to that is actually giving the advantage to authoritarian governments.
2: Mike, you want to jump
0: in? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to phrase what I. What I'm, I, I think. I think there's there's obvious truth to to what's been said. I think that um, where things sometimes break down is. This idea that, you know, just naturally working with the national security community, uh, therefore helps promote liberal values like that. And I think that's where some of the concern and the conflict um, that led to some of this panel comes from is that you know, historically, you know, there have been certainly long periods of time where there was alignment um, between the national security community and the tech community, uh, and many of the innovations that we talk about sort of, you know, flowed out of that. Um, But, you know, in the last, you know, decade, decade and a half, um, we've seen more and more instances where there have been conflicts between, between the different values, right? And so, you know, you look at things like NSA surveillance in terms of then stepping in and making use of, um, you know, of the commercial, uh, sector companies and and what they're doing, causing a huge rift in terms of trust, uh, between the public and those companies, um, it makes it harder for those companies to then feel that they, um, should be in a position where they're working with, with the national security community because they're, they're sort of afraid of how that comes out in the, in the long run.
3: I actually think that that example is the exact example that I would have employed to make my point. So, so, so had- Ch- China is systematically oppressing the Uyghur communities with no democratic oversight whatsoever, whereas the Freedom of Information Act and Patriot Act that contributed towards the the NSA revelations that came out with Snowden had oversight and frequent interaction with government committees of democratically elected officials that were supposed to be representing the will of the American people. So if we chose to not be supportive of our representatives because we felt like they were doing things that they shouldn't have done, we have the ability in a democratic government to not elect them to office again.
1: Uh, I th- Again, (laughs) testing. Um, I I think what Mike was describing as a description of uh, of um, of uh, distrust that uh, that that a lot of folks who've been on the other side of this uh, debate uh, uh, have. I I think I I think it's correct. Um, I I don't think. But I, of course, agree with with Trey's where Trey comes out on 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 a prescription on, on that issue a much broader issue that exceeds the scope of today's discussion, but it's worth thinking about. Um, Over the last few administrations, particularly in a post iraq and post-Afghanistan environment, um, have not seen it upon themselves to exercise the political capital that they need to, to persuade the American people on the merits of an interventionist foreign policy. And as a replacement for that, we have seen the employment of of, of, of tactics or, or, or systems that uh, have precluded the need for them to, to, to do that, be it um, the secret use of drones abroad, uh, secret kill lists, um, sanctions policy, which can be imposed largely unilaterally by, by the administration without very much in the way of of, of congressional um, input. Um, they're, they're, in as much as there may be a continued reliance on technology as a way of, for policymakers to eschew the responsibilities of leadership in persuading the American people of the merits of a broader interventionist foreign policy that we need to manage our relationships internationally, this
3: could, this could, be, a problem, could be a problem going forward. But Do you think there should be a popular governmental referendum on all classified programs? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say
1: that at all. But, but, but I do think that if a, the best way to help ensure that our national security interests are furthered around the world, the more involved we have to be around the world, and that those, uh, I do think it's incumbent upon our political leaders to persuade the American people of the merits of that kind of approach to international relations. And if we, instead of anyone uh, wanting to exercise the political capital in doing that simply employ uh, tactics or operations or systems that uh, that 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 um, that that preclude them having to do that I I think that's I think I think that may give rise to to, to, to concern going forward
0: and okay I mean also you have to take into consideration the, the economic concerns right you have companies who you know when they are found out to be working closely with the national security sector, that then there are questions about, especially outside the United States, whether or not people will trust them and use those services. You know, there's, you know, there are other interests beyond just whether or not they're able to help the U.S. government, you know, uh, get engaged in surveillance. And, and so there are, there are a bunch of concerns that I think, you know, the, the reason why there's been sort of this you know, trust breakdown uh, between Silicon Valley and the government comes back to the fact that the national security community frequently did not consider any of the costs of the programs that they were doing, you know, beyond – Or I should, I should clarify, they didn't consider the cost if any of what they were doing then became public, which it did, um, and therefore had very significant and very real costs on the companies in terms of who was going to trust them and who were going to use their services.
3: I'm pretty sure that's actually the definition of top secret programs is you consider the cost of something becoming public. So you classify it. That's why the programs were classified was because they had considered the cost of what would happen if it became public.
2: And so, well, I think this discussion, like, sort of frames how people are feeling about the environment. I mean, one of the things that people are more exposed to are, you know, thinking about the privacy and NSA concerns. That's been more of a, a thing in the media. But, you know, when we're talking about this in the way that tech companies can work with defense, there are a lot of other ways to do that, and there are a lot of other ways to be involved. Um, and, you know, we've seen some things in the news about conflict of values, but kind of what I'm getting from you guys is – Um, There's a balancing there. If you're going to be concerned about values here, there should be concern about that um, in other places. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that there's absolutely a national security imperative associated with, once again, the Department of Defense's access to uh, technological commercially developed uh, uh, dual-use technology, particularly by, by, by the commercial sector going forward, and that is absolutely necessary for us to make sure that we maintain the technological superiority that we need to have over near-peer competitors going forward. That having been said, it is absolutely also clear to me that in order for the DOD to, to, to be in that position, where it can benefit from those uh, technologies being developed in the commercial sector, it must demonstrate that these technologies can be used by it for def- for purposes of national security and defense safely and ethically. And without that, um, uh, uh, I, I think some of the some of the some of the uh, 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 controversies we've seen in the past may may bear fruit. And obviously, that wouldn't be in anyone's best interest.
0: Yeah I mean I think there's there's just some cultural differences there that you know conceivably could be tackled but I don't think there's been enough of an attempt to really get to that to that point um and and some of that's just sort of the the way in which those you know uh Two two groups of people operate. The Defense Department looks at things in in through a very particular lens, and Silicon Valley looks at things through a very very different lens. Um, you know there are areas where they have certainly worked together in the past and in, in in many important ways. But um, when that communication is not uh, is not well established and and it isn't really in a bi-directional way, to to make sure that these technologies are going to be used ethically, as you said, um, then that creates a lot of friction and a lot of problems.
2: Um, and so, you know, in these discussions kind of about um, the stories in the news and everything, like, is there actually a rising pressure to restrict the downstream use of open platforms in the U.S.? I mean, is that, is that a real thing or is that just something we're hearing about in the news? Is that a fun story to get people excited or is that what's really going on?
3: Uh, I wouldn't say that there is like a, a majority opinion that we shouldn't be using these technologies for government purposes, um, but there is definitely a very vocal minority that is, that is kind of pushing this forward, uh, not only within Google, where I'm sure many of you have seen the, the story around pulling out of Project Maven on the AI side, um, but also kind of controversy that's been brewing at Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce, Palantir... Um, And other companies that have had government contracts for a really long time. Um, You know, that vocal minority has a tendency to kind of shout down the alternate opinions within the building uh, and make it into like almost a human rights issue. So it's like if you disagree with me, you are a bad person. And so it's, you can't really have a debate when, you're, when it's framed on those grounds. One of the interesting things that was, miss, that was missed oftentimes by the media in the Google Maven thing is that uh, Sundar Pichai, um, there was some quote that he said at a town hall about withdrawing from Maven where he said, wouldn't you rather Google a globalist company... Uh, be developing these practices rather than nationalistic defense contractors. And so literally his framing was, I don't believe in the nation state. Therefore, these programs have nothing to do with protecting the nation state. We are, you know, protectors of the global universal world order, um, which is a, a big difference from the way that defense contracts have been handled in the past never thought about that. I'd uh, love
1: to think about that more. I think it's, there's a, a lot of merit to that observation. I, I think that when we look at particularly the, the highest profile cases of of, of corporate uh, activism, I think we need to do, I do think it's helpful to, to, to view them in context, right? So there are high profile examples of employees for large Silicon Valley IT companies, Basically, uh, 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 asserting themselves on the possible military use of of dual-use technology. Of course, we, as we know, the the national security uh, technology industrial base goes far beyond Silicon Valley. You know, whether or not you're going, you're referring. I'm referring to to Austin, Boston, uh, Orlando, Atlanta, Phoenix, Raleigh-Durham, Indianapolis. All of those ecosystems are comprised uh, uh, to a very significant degree by small uh, uh, commercial tech companies, very, in very many cases startups, in very many cases owned or managed by veterans or other individuals who are similarly uh, uh, inclined to support the, 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 the deity's uh, mission or national security. So how, just through that prism, um, how uh, typical uh, or symptomatic what we saw with regard to Google and Project Maven is of a larger trend. I think remains unclear. Also, historically, I think it's also worth remembering or bearing in mind that employee of all the types of uh, corporate activism that there are out there. If you were to l- lay them out on a continuum from those that are most that are least uh, 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 likely to affect corporate behavior to those that are most likely employee demonstrations tend to be the least, the, the, the least influential on, on the other hand where you have activism demonstrated or manifested or uh, by for example um, large investors or large institutional investors or or, or large uh, 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 individual investor uh, or or uh, or uh, employees who've actually been harmed by corporate behavior and have actually taken that to, to, to court in the case of MacKilladora lawsuits in the late 90s, for example. Those are, much, those are examples of much more effective ways by which uh, uh, corporate activism can, can change uh, corporate behavior. So I, I think there's... I think there is reason to believe that what we saw here a, a few a few weeks ago may not be indicative of larger trend lines, but uh, of, of trend lines going forward. But, uh, but just some thoughts there. I, I remain on, unclear on that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends. And I think we'll see different situations. I think a lot of people have already forgotten that, you know, um, I think probably, I can't remember now how long ago it was, last year, maybe the year before, Twitter um, stopped a contract that was uh, uh, with a third party that was allowing the Defense Department to basically... You know, uh, monitor Twitter accounts, and and then, and you know they just claim basically we don't want to allow those kinds of services to be used for government purposes. That struck me as a little bit odd, um, just in general, because we're talking about public information. I could understand in, in, in other areas where there's concerns about privacy and other things, but when you're talking about public information. But the fact was that 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 did happen. So there are there is definitely a a, a feeling within a lot of tech companies that you know we don't we don't want to be seen as um, the word complicit is very loaded, but but we don't want to be seen as uh, a partner in activities that we feel go against our values or that could boomerang back against us. And and in terms of the point that Pablo was just making concerning, you know, employee uprising or employee uh, activism may not be as effective, um, you know, that, that may be true. It'd be interesting to see how some of these other programs go. I, I would say, you know, certainly depending on it, it does depend very much on which employees are, are involved. And in Silicon Valley, where the fight over hiring and keeping the best employees is uh, fierce and vicious and, um, and pretty crazy. You could certainly see where that could have a very, very real impact, um, not just in trying to retain and keep certain employees happy, but also to attract new employees as well. Which you know is sort of a cultural statement, but I think is really important to a lot of the companies
3: out here. I think both of those comments also kind of echo out the capitalism wins thing. It's like employee activism only works insofar as it hurts your bottom line. um The interesting thing about the twitter. Asking, I think it was GNIP at the time, GNIP, that was selling the fire hose to to the DoD. The interesting thing there is that it it wasn't working as a business model because the government didn't know what to do with social media analysis in a world in which you have free speech. So, like, it worked, it was a great product for repressive governments. It wasn't a great product for a non repressive government. And so, all those businesses are are gone. Like, Topsy was acquired by Apple, GNIP went out. So, for Twitter to say, stop doing this, it's like, yeah, there's no money to be made. Whereas Google's happy to go run into China and have a, a censored search engine because, hot dog, there's a lot of money in that. So capitalism does win.
2: Well, so that leads to a next question. When we talk about possibly restricting access to tech here, does that also translate this values judgment? Does it translate to going into other countries? Um, you mentioned, you know, entering into China. One of the things that frustrates me very much about going over there is the forced intellectual property transfer. So I'm wondering, is there is there some kind of pushback um, within major tech companies on um, allowing other governments that are perhaps more authoritarian uh, using these technologies? Seeing the same kind of cultural revolt? <laughs>
0: I mean, there's so many different scenarios and so many different situations. It's hard to say necessarily, right? I mean, so the the fight right now is this question over Google and China. I mean, that's that's a big discussion, right? I mean, you know, Google had made the decision years back to sort of, you know, uh, to to leave China. They also have made decisions to to effectively, for the most part, leave Russia um, and certainly take employees out out of Russia. Um, and so you see some of that, but now you have the situation where that market in China in particular is considered so large and the, the economic incentives are so strong that they're apparently and this is all you know based on leaks and uh, to reporters and stuff uh, attempting to go back in and and in a way that the government will will be happy with it and that's then raised concern so the 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 question i think is sort of how will that play out you have now stories of of high level employees resigning at google because of that um and so there will be a lot of different pressures on any company uh you know, especially the Silicon Valley tech companies in terms of how do they deal with, with these regimes, you know, the response on the other side is, you know, or from, you know, from, from the, the perspective from the people at Google who do want this to, to go forward is better us than somebody else. Um, and, you know, whether or not that plays is, is kind of an, an open question. But, um, you know, I, I think it, we're, we're still sort of figuring out how, how that all works out in the long run.
3: One of the things that, with regards to this question, that's been really interesting to me, um, seeing especially, like, the Twitter kicking people off the platform and things as well, is that I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I think when you have kids, you start realizing core things about human psychology that kind of get watered down over the ages, but um, my kids hate hypocrisy more than anything else, right? It's like, you say one thing, you do another thing, like, that's super bad. You're not allowed to do that. And I think that this is ingrained into us as humans, Um, and... I'll get to the point. Um, basically like I think we should hold ourselves to a really high standard. Like we have to hold our companies, our government, so 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 and so on to a really high standard. And the challenge is, is where we start lying about how we're holding other people to, to standards or not holding them to standards. Um, for example, like kick off the infowars guy. That's great. Hold hold our people to a really high standard. But you can't j- then just let, you know, ISIS talk about repressing people and lying about the Holocaust and things like that. And there are thousands of those accounts on Twitter that are constantly popping up. And it's the same thing that happens in this case. It's like, yes, we have to hold ourselves to a really high ethical standard on, on AI um, and then kind of lie and be like, of course, we're doing the same in China. It's like, no, we're lying. <laughs> You're lying to your employees. You do not hold non-U.S. people to the same standard that you hold us
0: yeah i i mean i i agree in, in concept and and i agree i have kids the same age so i'm i know exactly what that feeling is but but um you know i i don't think that i, I think we could go down a huge tangent on the question of like content moderation uh uh you know i i think it's unfair to say that that they're holding people to, to different standards i think the issue there is that um you just have
3: Impossible decisions to make and and everything. I mean Mahmoud Ampatinejad is a Twitter user. Yeah, that's not that's not like a a niche thing Like it's yes, he has hundreds of thousands of followers. It's a known thing. He has an account. Yes, he's still on Twitter Yeah, you're not holding them to the same
0: standard and i far be it from me to be the person to defend uh, Twitter's moderation choices or any company's moderation choices, but you know they have within their terms of service a basically a newsworthiness exception. They've decided that for whatever reason that that is a newsworthy situation, and there's an argument there. But that I mean it, we're we're getting into a, 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 a pretty distant tangent, right? So the, the the issue though that get that gets back to is not so much sort of the the hypocrisy or the different standards that are you know that that companies are being held to, but that you know. The, the world is a big place. The internet does not play nicely with different jurisdictional boundaries. And yet companies are trying to figure out how do you best balance being a global company in which the internet can reach everywhere. And, you know, to deal with the, you know, the, the different levels of, of laws and, and uh, regulations within all those different countries. And that's you know it 's not an easy challenge to deal with, and you know companies have to make all sorts of decisions you know both based on what will impact their bottom line um, but also sort of how much they 're willing to put up with in terms of potentially going against their values and and you know we can criticize the different choices, but recognize also that it 's those are all very very difficult decisions and i um even and and you know i 'm you know i 'm going a little bit against my own <laughs> Uh, because I've certainly criticized companies for for the positions they've taken in different countries, but um, I don't think that any, especially the larger companies, are taking these issues lightly in terms of how they think about these issues. I think they are uh, considering them seriously and not just, you know, uh, tossing off, oh, we're going to do this here and this here, and if if it's not consistent, that doesn't matter. I think there are sort of thoughtful discussions and, and reasons for why they take the stance that they do in those cases.
2: So and then coming back around to um, access for DoD, I mean, there's another avenue for access to technology, and that would be through startups and other, other players within the space. So what kind of access do startups have? How is DoD working with uh, the startup community? And do they know how to work with each other?
1: the um uh, it's actually been uh, a very substantial issue uh, in d c and the pentagon um it was i think the 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 proposition that i started off the conversation with my, my piece of it, I think represented an emerging consensus or consensus that basically emerged i 'd say about two or three years ago. I think as of that point, there have been a lot of things um, that the dod has been has been um, has been doing, probably the most salient of which happened most recently uh, in the national defense strategy. That was just put out just a few months ago the the policy definition of national security industrial base was expanded to include basically non-traditional commercial suppliers of of technology which represents um, a sea change um, in the DOD's thinking Um, I think one way I would answer that Katie's question is also to separate two distinct concepts I think that I I think folks tend to use um, and certainly in the building at the Pentagon uh, and on the hill people tend to use interchangeably incorrectly and that's technology and innovation technology is a procurement problem innovation is a human capital problem and the two uh, are addressed in through very very different ways the duty on the technology side has been doing quite a lot um, it's um, uh, recent it's right, right now it's in the process of actually completing its reorganization of the entire acquisitions directorate to make sure that there is one person who is responsible for making sure that the DoD has continuing access to these uh, commercial technological e- ecosystems r- around the country. Um, they've been doing a lot of other things like reforming, once again, the, um, through rulemaking, some of the regulations that govern how the DoD procures commercial products and services, once again, relaxing these barriers to entry. Um, there have also been, uh, you guys may, or may not have heard of DIUX in Silicon Valley. The DoD realized a, a few about three years ago that in order to be taken seriously um in, in probably in the most significant technology hub around the country, they needed to have a hub – I'm sorry, an outpost, a place in the valley where they could interact directly with, with relevant stakeholders. And over time, it was also realized that that, 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 that uh, outpost needed to have contracting authority to do deals with – uh, uh, commercial startups, in particular, once that deal flow started happening, the, the venture capital community started quite rightly paying attention and started uh, um, uh, supporting supporting the the the, the, the dual use uh, ecosystem here. Um, so, and that model is being replicated around the country and some of the other uh, ecosystems around the country. Um, the DOD has also put up both at the OSD level with DIU. Called Defense Innovation uh, Unit, as well as some other technology accelerators and incubators, have also placed them in some of these uh, uh, areas around the country, which is good. Um, it's improving the DoD's access to technology. It's making it more. It's making it easier for the DoD to acquire technology. Um, but it doesn't solve the innovation problem, and the innovation problem is a much difficult, uh, much more difficult uh, uh, issue to address. Um, it, we're starting to see some, some interesting. It, a culture tends to be more a function, I think, of leadership and vision. Um, it's some. It's a problem that 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 one I think addresses incrementally over time. But we have the DoD has got some really tremendous leadership, particularly among its senior acquisition management, uh, uh, who have have their eye on the ball. I think are doing some really interesting things with the assistance of the Defense Innovation Board. Um, obviously, um, that's well well represented by the uh, by technologists. So.
0: Um, two two very quick anecdotes that I think uh, hopefully demonstrate one how far uh, the Defense Department has come on this, and then one that demonstrates how far it still has to go. So the the, the first I, my very first job in Silicon Valley when I moved out here almost exactly twenty years ago was working at a startup and trying to get them a government contract and at, with the Defense Department. And at that time, that meant basically paying a retired. Uh, you know military guy five figures a month to drink bourbon with the right people and hope that we could figure out how to sneak a contract through um, which was an interesting uh, uh, process and sort of eye-opening for company spending a venture capitalists uh, cash um, that has somewhat changed. I don't know how much of that is still true, but there is now this ever and there are Defense Department people here. But then the, the more recent story that suggests how far we still have to come is not that long ago. Um, I was talking to somebody who is in the Defense Department and was talking about, you know, trying to deal with Silicon Valley and, and to, to get sort of innovative thinking back into the Defense Department and said, you know, part of the problem is that there are people at a high level who, under you know understand that innovation uh, is important, but don't understand what that means or how to understand it. And so like the the anecdote that was told to me, and this is you know hearsay, uh, was that you know someone higher up in the Defense Department basically said, um, "Get me a meeting with Travis Kalanick. This is when he was still running Uber. Um, you know Uber's this innovative company, and we need to figure out how to Uberize the Air Force.
4: <laughs>
0: Whatever the hell that means. It doesn't sound good." But gives you, you know, the the viewpoint was like innovation good, Uber innovative, get me a meeting, and so there's still a sort of a big cultural gap between understanding, you know, that that the defense department needs innovation, and then how to actually make that that you know culture work.
3: Yeah, you, you know that it, it, so. Everything I'm about to say is from the context of being a partner at a venture fund that has almost $4 billion in asset center management. So keep this in mind. I'm talking about the economics of a large venture fund. So in the last 20 years, there have only been two companies that have been private venture-backed doing the majority of the business with their government, with the government that have reached a valuation of over $1 billion. Palantir and SpaceX. That's it. There are two examples. That's it. Um, and... You know, the, the crazy thing, one of them is rockets, the other one's software. That You wouldn't think that they have that much in common, and yet they share a bunch of stuff in common. One is that they don't pay retired generals. They flip off the government, and, and they're like, have a kind of a quasi-frenemy relationship. They've both sued the government. SpaceX sued the Air Force. Palantir sued the Army. Um, but maybe most importantly, they both have billionaire co-founders. Why is that important? It's important because the government sales cycle is longer than a venture capital, fu- capital fundraising cycle. So you have to have the ability to essentially float these things for a really long time before they can be successful. Okay, so that's point one. Point two is that all of these things that Pablo mentioned that I think are really important, by the way, like Defense Digital Service, the DIUX, Incutel, you know, all these organizations that were set up um, have done great work. But at the end of the day, most of what they've been doing is facilitating entrepreneurship and innovation pornography. It's Silicon Valley tourism. Um, it, is, it is both simultaneously never been easier than at any point in American history to get a pilot with the Department of Defense, and it's also never been harder than at any point in U.S. history to get a recurring program of record contract with the U.S. government. Now, the reason for this is defense primes. Um, the uberization of the of the military would have been a huge contract for Lockheed Martin. It doesn't matter how many companies in Silicon Valley or in Austin or in Boston or in L.A., it doesn't mean it matter how many of them would have competed. The contract would have gone to a defense prime, and they would have pissed away the money, and it would have been over budget and over schedule, and at the end of the day, it wouldn't have worked, and Congress would be looking around, trying to point fingers at somebody to blame it, and at the end of the day, we've got Two hundred one million dollar pilots with all these tech companies and we have a seven billion dollar contract with General Dynamics that doesn't work. This is like the model that we've kind of accepted as being okay. Um, My proposal would be that, look, if you spend a hundred million dollars a year on innovation programs, let's give twenty five million dollars to four companies. That's it, just $25 million to four companies in four strategic areas. Let's get them to the point where they can actually go out and recruit and retain talent. They can raise real money because they have recurring contracts. Um, And maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to pull some General Atomics, some SpaceX, some Palantir, some Blackbird out of a hat. And if maybe you get one of those a year, that's still way better than what we're doing right now where all the money's just disappearing. Um, I would encourage you, by the way, to go look at DIU's portfolio list on their website. Lots of really cool companies. Ask yourself how many of them have production programs of record. The answer is none that I know of. So great pilot opportunities. We have to transition into production. Um, DARPA has a $3.5 billion annual budget with less than 5% program transition. So I don't think that's an effective use of money.
1: And I think that's probably, that's one of the reasons why the Defense Acquisition Directorate was stood up in the way that it did. How can we identify a particularly promising commercial uh, uh, technology uh, uh, subjected to developmental prototyping and get it into production as quickly as we possibly can. You know, as Trey and Mike alluded to, from a cultural standpoint, that represents a sea change in how the DOD has been going about research and development. Just to underscore the point, but by, by by my my figures, since between 2001 and 2015, the DOD squandered 49 billion dollars in monies that were appropriated for research. Development uh, For research and development on about nine major defense acquisition programs that were never fielded That is indicative of how the DoD does business an undue premium on capex uh, inappropriately motivated through a perverted uh, a, 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 a Alignment of incentives within the building. It's not about actual uh, actual uh, actually It has not been about actually fielding capability. It's about uh, about getting on rails promised capability without ever fielding it at the end of the day, so I, I, That having been said a lot of the, the things that I've been seeing both on the acquisition side the technology side innovation side I think uh, In fact not I think I I uh, I, 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 I really do believe are uh, give rise for hope um, but we 've got a long way to go.
3: yeah, I think what, what I would like to see from ANS, Ellen Lord and Arnie Mike Griffin is actually coming out and saying this is a zero sum game if we 're going to have new entrants to the market that are going to win, defense primes are going to have to lose. you can 't keep their budget the same, and then it, but they're not going to they won 't say that, but that 's the thing that we need to come to terms with is that IBM, Boeing, Lockheed, they're going to have to feel the pain. Yeah, actually,
1: and I want to be careful to say I'm not talking for the DOD. I'm not a DOD spokesperson. But I, I don't t- disagree with that formulation. Uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, the Air Force, Air Force Secretary, I believe, uh, Heather Wilson, uh, recently committed to uh, to modernizing our uh, – it's a certain category, certain type of satellite uh, program intended to replace the SIBRS program, which has been – which has been performing horribly in terms of uh, of uh, in terms of co- in cost schedule and performance through uh, she wants it fielded within five years relying on mostly currently existing or even easily developed uh, a commercial technology but we, for which for me being a former congressional staffer bodes well because five years is the budget the duty budget horizon it's called a FIDEP, future years defense program its budget over five years whenever I used to have a pro a PEO come come in and, and talk with me on behalf of Senator McCain talking with me about what they're going to do in a given program outside of the five-year budget program I tell them you don't know what the hell you're talking about you're guessing because you your, your programming beyond your time horizon for, Mitch, for for Senator McCain and the Congress to hold you accountable for what what's coming out of your mouth. So the fact that she said that she could do it within five years is notable, and obviously Sibbers would be in direct uh, competition with, with the Prime. So I thought that was notable.
2: Right. Um, so we will, in just a second, go to audience questions. Um, before we do that, I just wanted to ask you guys, is there anything that I haven't brought up that you'd like to mention or – Make sure that people are aware of, or you can be thinking about that while we go to audience questions, because I think we have one. All right, let's, let's take the audience question first.
0: Um, hey there. Um, I'm wondering, in terms of what's happening in the Valley and something I'm trying to figure out in my reporting, um, it, it seems like there's a characterization that, and I think it's true in some cases, where tech workers, especially engineers, have a lot of influence, are saying, no, like we will not work with the military at all, we will not work with the government at all. But there might be other cases where they're saying, not this project, like not this China project, right, like uh, uh, drag, uh, Dragonfly. Or we disagree with the way that ICE or CPB is, is enforcing border policies. Um, and I wonder if it's – some cases it's just like a blanket no, and others it's more like taking a policy position. And if that, we need to kind of calibrate the way we're looking at the situation and differentiate the protests based on that.
1: I mean, I've certainly seen commentary in that regard uh, about some of the activism that we've seen. Um, you know, I, I think while I think Mike's description of, of, of uh, some of the uh, concerns that that folks might have with regard to how national security uh, has been administered so far is probably correct. I mean, I don't really know that. I think we've all seen some some commentary that indicates that uh, uh, it's been attributable to a, a, general, um, uh, uh, a general, a generally hostile position with regard to this president and his administration and the policies he's pursuing. Um, so, uh, but I have no way of knowing if that's the case. It could be, it could be all of the above at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of factors at play, but I, I certainly I don't think I, I don't think there's like a general sense of not working with the government. I think that there's lots of willingness to work with the, the government. Uh, I think there are specifics about specific concerns that are generally felt uh, about working with specific parts of the government and for specific reasons. OK,
4: next question. Oh, thanks. Hi, my name's Patrick. So just first a caveat, because I think my question could be construed as implying that the question before the panel is scapegoating activism, government, and some of these topics are, you know, government contracting, et cetera, for what a problem is. But I'm thinking about a time when the government's access to the best technological talent in the country came from a true coherence and clarity and urgency of purpose and problem, and I'm thinking about World War II, right, where the greatest technologists in the country came together at the Harvard Radio Lab with the purpose and problem of confusing enemy communications during a crucial moment in the war, and it was no problem at that time for the government to have access to the greatest technologists in the country, and that perhaps what it's lacking now is something like that. In fact, that whole effort led you know, to uh, Stanford Professor Terman coming over to lead the lab, coming back to Stanford, and giving rise to the thing that we now call Silicon Valley. So my question to the panel is to put on a different set of hats and say, well, what could that be today?
3: Are you suggesting that we should catalyze existential threat? Because <laughs> I, can, I can totally do that right now. <laughs>
0: I, I, yeah, I mean, if aliens come down from outer space, I, I, I
3: bet... No, 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 they... not if they do. If we create a situation in <laughs> sure. which it seems like aliens have come down from outer space.
0: Maybe, maybe we shouldn't discuss that on the live mic, but...
3: <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think access to talent is a huge problem. Um, you know, the, There's all sorts of stats that you could throw around about r- recruiting and retention and the government and how that's worked or not worked with engineers, um, I think the, the, there are multiple facets to why this might be the case. Earlier today, we've heard some people talk about compensation being a problem, which I think is it is a part of the problem. It might not be the biggest part of the problem. You have culture. Uh, you know, do you want to sit in a cubicle in a basement without windows and paying for soda out of vending machines, or do you want to work at Google? Uh, I mean, it seems like those are pretty different. Um, But I think another aspect of this is the difference between hardware and software. So during uh, during the Great Wars and in the Cold War, if you were an engineer and you wanted to build aircraft carriers, well, there was one place that you could go to build an aircraft carrier. Today, if you're like a top-flight artificial intelligence engineer graduating from college... Like, you can go work on self-driving cars. You can work on, you know, slam mapping for construction. Uh, You can work on, you know, deep learning for natural language processing. You can work on ad optimization, which is really where all the people are working. They just don't want to tell you that. (laughs) Trust me, they're all working on ad optimization. Um, and, And you can do that at, you know, half a million dollars a year in comp. Um, and so figuring out how to recruit and retain software engineers is different than metal benders, And I think that's kind of where we're running into some trouble. And, and we should keep in mind, and I know I said this before, that it's worth reiterating, our adversaries conscript this talent into service. Like in China, they have the concept of civil-military fusion. Uh, in Israel, they, they literally conscript them into service. I mean, not that Israel's an adversary, but like we're, we're in a weird position where like, you know, because we're a free, democratic country, we actually have to convince people to do things. Um, And uh, I think that's harder than most people think that it is.
1: I think there are um, uh, at least three ways of of uh, I- encouraging uh, civilian support in, in 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 the national security mission. I think one of them is by conscription. The other one is by inducement, or 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 particularly with regard to compensation and benefits. The other one is by inspiration, and I think that's what maybe you might have been alluding to. Um, as you guys know, about a year ago, China announced set out for itself as a policy priority worldwide dominance in the area of art artificial intelligence by 2030. Um, if achieved, uh, and by 2030, we probably, won't, we probably still won't be talking about truly autonomous general AI applications, probably still narrow AI. But still, suddenly, you know, if you achieve worldwide dominance in this capability, suddenly the Sinkoku Islands look different. Spratly Islands look different. Maybe Taiwan looks a little different. So the geopolitical implications of, of, of this issue are, are becoming quite severe and do give an opportunity for presidential quality leadership by someone who's willing to embrace it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there may be we may see, particularly with some of the you know the ZTE, some of the, some of the the China-related uh, uh, issues uh, that, that that have been uh, uh, discussed as of late. I, I I look forward to seeing that kind of leadership. But I, I do think it, it may take that kind of leadership and vision to get the industrial base as mobilized as as it as could need to be.
2: And we've got another question in the back. Yeah. It follows along from what you're saying. You know, One of the things that puzzles me is if you are an American, um, if you're privileged to be an American, why is it that you feel such reluctance to contribute to the defense of the country? Is it that we no longer have um, a draft? Do we need young people to have a sense that... Uh, as your former boss would say, God rest him, um, that we all have to give something back.
3: Yeah, I, I think, and again, I think that there's a vocal minority that believes some things that maybe the majority doesn't. But in my experience, the vocal minority, whether it's conscious or subconscious, doesn't believe in the nation state. And so they, they wouldn't feel comfortable saying, like, I feel privileged to be an American. They would say, I feel privileged to be a human or a citizen of the world or, or something along those lines. And so if you don't actually believe that the nation state is something worth defending, then why would you defend the nation state? Um, and that's markedly different than World War II. Um, and, again, I don't think there's you know, a vast amount of people in San Francisco or in the Bay Area that would say that, but I think there are enough people saying it that it makes being nationalistic or patriotic actually like a hate crime.
0: Uh, I, I might push back. I mean, there may be some people like that, but I think there are plenty of people who are perfectly patriotic and perfectly, you know, proud to be Americans who are interested in helping out, but they want to make sure that the help that they're giving and the support that they're giving is, you know, for the values that they believe in. And that's where a lot of the concern comes in. And you have these situations where it feels like uh, to many people that, again, what I said at the very beginning, the intelligence community perhaps abused um, abused their power and abused um, their position and used the technology in ways that people were not comfortable with. And, and so... You know, I think that's what where a lot of the concern is, and we're having some of that. We we got through this entire debate, and we didn't even mention encryption and the idea of like backdoors and encryption, which is a huge concern for for many people and people within the defense department and national security community actually, you know, are somewhat split on that and come out in different ways. But you know, you talk to people out here, and, and almost universally, people are very worried about. This idea that that we need to put back doors into encryption because it creates all sorts of other security holes uh, from from our position so I, I don't think you know there I'm sure there are some people who are who are like that. I think there are other people who are just concerned that it's not that they're um you know they, they don't want to support america they' just don't want to support a government doing things that they, they feel as opposed to, to American values.
3: And I actually, this is, and I, I don't want to beat a dead horse too much, but I am less sympathetic to that view than most others because the angle that, that you're articulating is essentially that as a Google engineer, I believe that I personally should have oversight and knowledge about how the technology that I'm, that I'm building is being used by the intelligence community. Like, do we actually think that the general public, like, literally everyone in America should have a security clearance? Like, that doesn't I, make I don't, any sense. That's why we have go, representative democracy.
0: There's a big leap there. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think that's a fair statement. I think what is fair is for, you know, a, a Google engineer or anyone working on any product to have some knowledge about how their product is being used and if that product is but being used. But the people,
3: the a, people you know, protesting Maven were not working on Maven. So do we think that the people not working on Maven out of the tens of thousands of people at Google should have clearance access to know what's happening on a classified program in the U.S. government?
0: It's not necessarily – I mean we can go back and forth on this. It's not necessarily about clearance access or or whatever, but they can be concerned about the company that they work for, that they feel represents them and that they represent as well, that it is engaged in activities that they believe – uh, don't represent their values, and they, therefore they, they have theoretically right believe to, to it use.
3: might be being used to do, sure. despite the fact that they have no information yeah. other than what the media is saying. Sure. Okay. Uh,
2: <laughs> so, um, with that, we we're about out of time. But Pablo, did you want to throw anything else out there, or?
1: I was just going to respond to your question. Thank you for your kind reference to Senator McCain. Uh, you know, I, I think he's always been of the view that when uh, pe- uh, folks by their very nature want to live their lives and want to maximize their, their, their happiness and, and they, they, uh, they, they, they want to tend to their families, they want to make sure that, that they get the most out of life a, 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 as they can, the, the project of, of, of doing something beyond your, your own self-interest is a leadership issue. And I think until and unless there's someone out there who steps up and is willing to paint a vision for this country to which folks can aspire to and, and, and serve in government or, or contribute their, their brain power to contributing to the defense of the nation, um, I think he would put that less on John Key Public and more on the dearth of leadership we see in, in, in political office today. That's the way I see it. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you all so much uh, for this discussion today. And we'll let you guys enjoy the next one. To
4: moment. grab a shovel and dig up the tap. Uh, if we don't stand up to them, someone will get a shovel
0: and
1: dig up the cat uh, If don't up to them, someone To grab a shovel and think up the cat